0: Welcome to this week's episode of MicroConf on Air. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Every other Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, we live stream for 30 minutes, and I cover topics related to building and growing ambitious SaaS startups that bring us freedom and purpose and allow us to maintain healthy relationships. This week, we're trying a few new things. I think this is the first time we've ever live streamed on Twitter, so I'm curious to see how that pans out. As always, we are on YouTube and Facebook, but this week we'll be on Twitter. The other thing we're trying, it's a format we're testing out. We've been doing uh, MicroConf on air since March of 2020. So that's more than a year and a half at this point. And we have mostly done interviews. And I want to try something out for the next few episodes where I, it's a bit more educational on specific topics, high level stuff, like I'm not going to dig into click on this button in Facebook to run a Facebook ad, but maybe more philosophical or more directional strategic topics like today's topic of bootstrapping versus venture capital. What's the right move? I might sometimes bring in outside experts to interview or have a back and forth conversation about it. Some of these topics might be a little 101. They might be introductory stuff for folks who are new to the community. And obviously some are going to be deeper dives. Today's topic... I think it's going to be both. I think there'll be aspects of it at the start as I'm talking through bootstrapping and venture capital, maybe giving background and definitions on those that you might think this is a bit one-on-one. But as I dig in to really the differences and how you think about them and how I would think about them and which path to go down, that should hopefully feel more like a deeper dive into a thought process that maybe you yourself has gone through. And I should note that today is not just going to be bootstrapping versus venture capital, but I also want to talk about other options. There's debt, there's this indie funding that has started in the past few years, and I'll put some of those thoughts out at the end. So if you have questions as I'm rolling through this, I'd love it if you would post them in the MicroConf on Air channel in MicroConf Connect. That's at microconfconnect.com if you're not already a member. We are, I believe we're north of 2,500 founders and aspiring SaaS founders in MicroConf Connect. It's a great community. We moderate it and there's a lot of positivity and there's a lot of really deep conversations going on there. So microconfconnect.com if you're not part of that. Obviously, if you drop questions into uh, the chat of whatever platform you're watching this on, Producer Xander is, of course, monitoring those and, and pulling them in. There's a chance I might keep the questions to the end. We'll just see how it goes. Um, I do have an outline that I'm going through because I didn't want... I can talk about this stuff off the cuff for literally 20 minutes. I'm a podcaster, for crying out loud. But I wanted to outline and structure thoughts. And so depending on when questions come in, may cover them all at the end. I also have a special announcement, a sneak peek announcement. If you stick around till the very end... Um, you'll get a first look at something that that no one else uh, is seeing right now. So hopefully that's enough of a teaser to keep you around. All right. So the topic I'm covering today is bootstrapping versus venture capital. What's the right move? And for those in this community that the right move is that it depends, right? It depends on your circumstances, depends on your goals. So first thing I'm going to do is talk about bootstrapping. What is it? I'm guessing most folks watching this know what it is, but it's using your own funds. It can often be called self-funding, although I would say there's a little bit of a nuance even with self-funding and bootstrapping. But it's you maintaining complete control of your company, and it's the simplest structure. If you don't take outside debt or outside investment, you're bootstrapping. And it's how most businesses, not just tech businesses, because I'm going to focus more on SaaS and startups and high growth, but just most businesses are started this way. Dry cleaners, bookstores, the car wash down the street. And frankly, it's how most businesses should be funded. And the reason for that is that once you take on an investor they have an expectation of a return at some point. right? They're not investing out of the goodness of their heart. They're investing to get a return and they may provide a ton of value to you, advice. You may even become friends with your investor. Most investors are writing checks such that they can get a return on the investment. And with bootstrap businesses, that implies that at some point you either have to pull profits out of the business or you have to sell that business for what they call a liquidity event. You sell it for uh, a chunk of cash. And then that would go to the founders and the investors. But bootstrapping really is the default. And frankly, I think bootstrapping should be the default. Now, I have this expression where I say venture capital can and should fund 1% of tech businesses and bootstrapping and tiny seed are, it's the paths for the other 99%. That's how I think of seed: is funding for the other 99%. That's bootstrapping, simple. Complete control using your own funds. Let's talk about venture capital. Now, you probably know high level that venture capital is cash, right? It's venture cash. It's money that venture capitalists raise from wealthy individuals or institutions, and they do it to invest in specifically high-risk, high-growth companies. Venture capital, it's not considered venture capital if someone raises a fund and uh, buys a bunch of real estate, or invests in a bunch of car washes. That can still be a thing, but at that point it's usually called, well real estate might be a real estate investment trust, or buying car washes or buying businesses is usually referred to as private equity, which is a less risky model. So the idea with venture capital is that it's high risk and high growth, and they want you to put the pedal to the metal and to go big or to go home. Examples of venture capital firms you've probably heard of or may have heard of most of them up until even the past 10 to 15 years were located in uh, the Bay Area, the Silicon Valley as they call it. And there were some in New York as well, but it's it, it, venture capitalists are they tend to be in these larger cities where there are both founders there are and investors and wealthy individuals. Some examples of those include Sequoia Capital, Andreessen and Horowitz, Bessemer Venture Partners, those are just three. There are literally hundreds of venture capital firms. And technically, I think, I, I, I don't refer to TinySeed as this. TinySeed is the fund and accelerator that branches out of, the formed out of MicroConf. But technically, we are a venture fund and an accelerator. But we're, we don't, I don't call us that because we are different. We don't have that same mindset of we expect one in 10 companies to be a billion dollar unicorn and expect the rest to fail, much like uh, venture capital does. So from an investor side, it's interesting to think about venture capital from an investor side and from the people who run the funds. So from an investor side, why would an investor write a check to a venture capital fund at all? Couldn't they just buy stocks and bonds and real estate investment trusts or real estate at all? The thing is, some of these wealthy individuals and a lot of these large institutions like endowments, an endowment is a big fund that Yale or Stanford or Harvard have, they don't want to be 100% in public stocks and bonds because the stock market is very bumpy, right? It, you have these huge drops, 50% drops every time that there's a bear market, and they want to even that out. In addition, they have so much money to deploy, billions and billions of dollars, that they can... And should diversify, right, across many asset classes, not just stocks and bonds, but along metals, gold and silver and platinum, along cryptocurrency now, and venture capital. It itself is an asset class. Private equity is another asset class, different than venture capital, but obviously related. People raise funds and invest in companies, So venture capital and private equity are two examples of that. Venture capital from the investor side is restricted to accredited investors. If you raise a venture fund in the US, you have to raise from wealthy individuals, which arguably is a it's a what is that, almost a hundred-year-old law now in the US. And it's something that I think like Jason Kalkanis is someone who's trying to change that. And I actually think it should change. I think that crowdfunding and being able to invest small amounts into startups and invest small amounts into Investing small amounts into startups is taking place. Being able to invest small amounts into funds, personally, I think, should be able to take. So that's what venture capital is. It's a fund. You start a firm and you raise a fund from wealthy individuals and endowments, and then you invest in startups. Last thing I want to cover on that is how do venture capitalists make money? So they make money two ways. They make a management fee and they have carried interest, or it's also called carry. So the management fee comes out it varies on structure but the standard is a two percent management fee per year based on the assets managed so if you raise a 10 million dollar venture fund then if you're doing a two percent management fee that's going to be two hundred thousand dollars a year that you pull out of that money to run the firm to compensate you as you know the the general partner who's running it and you do that for the life of the fund which is usually 10 years so over the course of 10 years you'll pull out two million dollars just to run the fund day to day. Then there's carried interest or carry, and that is the profit or the gain, the net gain on the assets that you invest. So let's say you invest that $10 million that you raised into a bunch of startups. Some of them go out of business, and usually in in venture, it's six or seven. They expect to just go to zero, and then two or three to break even, or maybe it's a two or three X return. It's a low return for them, and then they want one, that is like the 100x return that returns the fund. But let's say blended across all that you return you pay you you return 20 million dollars, okay? So what happens with that 20 is the first 10 goes back to the investors just to pay them back and make them whole. Of the second 10 million that you made across the companies, you get, as the venture capitalist, the firm, you get 20%. That's your carry or your carried interest. So you would take $2 million, and then you give the $8 million remaining back to the investors. So that's the gist. Now, there are other structures. There are smaller funds often take higher management fees, or they front load their management fees. And I've heard of carry being stepped up, that if you return more than 2x the fund back, or 3x the fund, then it goes up to 25%. There's all... You know deviations of it. But the standard, if you just go Google it, right, is two and 20. So that's how venture capitalists are. You know what bootstrapping is, what venture capital is. The question is bootstrapping versus venture capital, what's the right move? I'm actually going to add to that question. And I'm going to say there's bootstrapping. I'm going to say there's venture capital. Then there's this other kind of funding that I think loosely I'll call indie funding. And this is raising places like Tiny Seed or angel investors who don't expect nine of the 10 to necessarily fail. And and so that's another type of funding I'll cover at the end. And then there's debt, right? There's revenue-based financing that is available specifically to SaaS companies. Once you hit about 15,000 a month, 15 or or 20,000 a month, then you have the option of pulling some revenue-based financing, which which can be interesting. As a reminder, if you have questions in the chat, feel free to, to put them in. Okay, so when is bootstrapping right for you? Certainly, if you don't want to give up any control or any equity to anyone else, you have no choice but to bootstrap. If you want to run your company forever, or you really want to be able to decide when to sell it on your own, or for how much, and be in full control, again, it comes back to control, then bootstrapping is what you want to do. Because if you don't want someone looking over your shoulder, asking questions, giving advice, most of the investors that I know, and I'm an investor now, most of the investors that I know are really good people, they give good advice, they... Uh, provide value. And often they're able to help companies. There's actually a benefit beyond the money. But there, of course, is that risk that you might get an investor who's a bad apple or someone who you don't want to work with. I've been on both sides. I have bootstrapped several companies. Then I sold to a funded company. So I saw what $38 million in venture capital could buy. And now I've started Seed, where we've raised... I mean, we're approaching, yeah, we're north of $31 million, you know, under management that we can invest. So I've seen both sides of it. And I will say unequivocally that bootstrapping is harder, that raising funding makes things easier. It can make things a little more complicated, but it makes things easier. So that's where I'm today. Back in the day, I don't know, I had great little lifestyle businesses. There's no reason to raise money if you're going to build a business to a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue. There's no one, I don't know of any investors who want to invest in businesses that are that small. Bootstrapping is great if you do want to build that great lifestyle business. Venture capital. If you want to raise venture capital, you're going to get on that that track. We call it the venture track. That's if you want to go to the moon, in essence. You want to build that billion dollar unicorn or bust because VCs, they are motivated to have, they're trying to find that one out of 10 that goes to a hundred X. And so it isn't in their benefit to find companies that can two, three, four X. Usually that's not on the radar. That's an abysmal failure. Okay. Now it is different with indie funding, like tiny seed. We love those base hits, but the goal of venture capital is to find startups that can become billion or $10 billion companies, or the effectively just go out of business. It's go big or go home is the mentality there. When you raise money, when you raise venture, you're going to hire fast. They're going to want you to burn money. The game is to burn money and to raise new funding every 18 months at a higher valuation. You will have a board of directors. You'll have board meetings. So this is where it gets more complicated. It can be easier because you have all this money to do stuff, but the complexity creeps in. Venture capitalists, sometimes, and I would say often, are able to block a sale of your company, and especially at low valuation. So it's that thing of, they want you to go big. If you raise venture at a five or 10 million or $20 million valuation, and then someone comes in, and even if you still own 80%, 90% of the company, and someone says, I want to pay you $40 million for this company, usually a venture capitalist does not want you to do that. Even though you'll have a great outcome, they don't want you to do that because they want you to go to that, that billion-dollar valuation because it's, it's a failure to sell less than that. So keep that in mind as, as you're thinking about it. In addition, venture capital funds are have a 10-year duration. And so they want their companies to sell or to go public to provide liquidity within 10 years. Usually, that's the that's the rule, and usually it's five to seven. A lot of things start to happen. Companies start to sell and go public. That's the trade off I, I think about. Is that I do think that raising money is easier. It's you can hire more support, you can move faster. It can be more interesting and more fun, but it's also more complex and it comes with some expectations. I, you know, I used to say it comes with strings attached, but I don't even think they're strings. It's not like they're hidden. That implies that they're hidden. It just comes with some expectations. Lastly, I'll touch on this indie funding, which, you know, is the in between bootstrapping and and venture funding. This is like what Tiny Seed is. And it's if you can find a group of angels who don't necessarily need that unicorn outcome, the billion dollar, $10 billion outcome, and have all the expectations I just outlined. That they maybe you just want to raise one round of two hundred fifty thousand or five hundred thousand to make it easier to get to escape velocity, and then you want to become a profitable company, or you want to grow to the point where you sell for twenty million. That is, these are the types of things that some angels and tiny seed will do. You're going to raise a smaller amount of funding than you would from a venture firm. Most venture firms are looking one even at a, like a seed round or like a, a million bucks, two million bucks, and up at a higher valuation versus Tiny Seed and Angels are in that lower range, usually in the low six figures. I would say that this route of indie funding is simpler than venture capital in terms of you're you're not going to have a board. You're not going to have someone breathing down your neck. Not all VC is like that either, but I I would say the structures are usually going to be simpler. And usually you don't have to give up control because that's not what you're agreeing to do. And if you, it, certainly with TinySeed and other indie funding sources, you can run your business and pull profits out of it, which is not an option with venture funding, right? They don't want you to pull profits out. They want you to grow and then sell or IPO. Very unusual, almost unheard of for a venture-backed business to become profitable to the point that they pull it out and distribute it to shareholders. So that's the third option. And that's something that I've seen emerging over the past, really it's been over 10, nine or 10 years. Uh, and I started writing some angel investment checks myself, and then realized that, that w- there were more companies that really wanted to go that third route than anything else, or, or there were more companies than I had money to fund. Is really what it became, and that was why we decided to raise that that tiny seed fund. Lastly, there is debt, and revenue-based financing is super interesting. And then I do see there's a couple questions that I'll get to, but debt financing used to be out of the question, but specifically with SaaS because the revenue and the growth is so predictable. There's something called revenue-based financing. And usually, like I said, it's about when you hit 15 grand, 20 grand a month, you can start finding some providers who, who can do that. There's, there's several out there, like SaaS Capital, Lighter Capital, Bigfoot Capital, Pipe.com is a new and interesting one. And what I've heard, I have not done debt myself, but we have funded some companies who've done it. And I think you can borrow about four times your MRR. That's a low end. Maybe that's the max. It's like four to six times your MRR. And then they take a certain percentage of your top line revenue for two or three years. And that's usually five to 10%, depending on the amount borrowed and the term of the loan. And then they make back whatever it is, two or three times their money. And it's pretty predictable. And that's it. And the nice part about that, if you decide to do it, is you don't have to give up, you don't have to give up equity, right? It's uh, non-dilute funding, so it's another option to think about. I have some great questions coming in. First one is from Jason Pallara from YouTube. He says, does it have to be bootstrapping versus venture capital? The more I work on my SaaS, it seems like bootstrapping is increasingly the required first step before you can get other forms of funding. That's a great question, actually. So obviously it doesn't have to be one versus the other. I think I've just on this 20 minutes here, I've shown four different options. But to your point, is bootstrapping always what you have to do in the early days? Because you can't go to, usually you can't go to angels or venture capital and say, I have an idea, fund me. That was 25 years ago. That doesn't happen anymore for the most part. The only time that happens is if you're a proven founder, you've had an exit or a bunch of venture capitalists and they, they are willing to invest in you to be able to, you just ha- you have something more than I did when I started out. You have a network or you have the right people. And I think most of us don't do that. So the answer to that is yeah, most people do have to bootstrap in the early days. And then the question is, do you continue bootstrapping or do you then consider raising you know, venture indie funding or debt to do it, to keep growing? There's There's a fifth one, and it's self-funding, which is something that I did with Drip. I had a prior startup called Hittail that was throwing off twenty to $30,000 a month, and that is what I used to fund Drip. I was like my own angel investor, and that I, is different than bootstrapping, because bootstrapping, I think, is when you really have almost no money, but self-funding, I spent one hundred and fifty dollars to $200,000 on Drip before we were profitable, so that's not... I don't know. It's not that I'm cutting hairs and I'm not, or splitting hairs and I'm not religious about, you know, this topic of bootstrapping and what it has defined as or whatever. But I do think there's a subtle difference between having zero dollars, which I started many startups with zero dollars. Some worked, some didn't. And then I started several that, or I started Drip with self-funding and and that was an easier road. It would be great if you're enjoying this video, if you'd like the video and subscribe, youtube.com slash microconf if you're not already on YouTube. Um, but subscribe and smash that subscribe button. That's the phrase I was looking for. That's what my kids always say, but that'd be great. We put out content like this every couple weeks. And as I said, it's an experiment for this one, but we're going to pick just a bunch of topics and and run through them. Question from Hunter, what's the typical compensation for funds like tiny seed or indie funding for the angel investors? That's good. So angel investors will they don't get any management fee so if you raise 250 300,000 400,000 dollars angel investors just put a pool of money into your company and they are investing directly in you so they just own a portion of your company they own a few percentage points of equity right so it's let's say you raise 300,000 dollars from angel investors at a 3 million dollar valuation they would own together 10 of your company and if they depending on, let's say it was one actual investor that did that for simplicity. Then if you pulled a dividend out at some point, you would get 90 and they would get 10%. Or if you sold the company, then they should get 10% and you would get 90. It's just pro rata based on equity. Um, same thing with tiny seed. Like we buy equity in your company. You, our standard range is 10 to 12%. And that is for a single founder, it's 120000 For two founders, it's 180. And for three, it's 220000 And we own that percentage. And then we share pro rata is the phrase, but whatever percentage of a company we own, then if you pull dividends out or you get a salary, you can take up to a quarter million dollars in salary that, that isn't impacted by the dividends. Then if you pull a dividend out or you sell, Tiny Seed, much like angel investors, would still be compensated. And of course, Tiny Seed is a fund. So to run the accelerator, we have staff, we're hiring a program manager in Europe right now, for example, then that's where we are actually taking money out of the funds that the investors gave us, the management fees, in order to fund the employees to compensate myself, my co-founder and such. So good question from Jason. He says, in the VC world, if you raise and become a failure so if you're a startup that raises and fails so you go to zero or you're 2x how do you start another company and raise money again it sounds like you'll have burned your one chance as a unicorn that's a, such a good question what's interesting is founders who go to zero if they've often have the battle scars and they've learned so much that they're actually better the next time and you can have folks especially if you maintain a good relationship with your investors i've had folks who I've been angel invested in, who either go to zero or just return my money after six years, or they return 50% of my money because they failed, but I will back them again because I know that they didn't fail on purpose. And I know it wasn't because of incompetence, it was because of market forces or the, whatever. There were other reasons uh, about it. And they have relationships now with a bunch of angel investors. Now, there are some founders that I've invested in that I'm gonna be honest. That I won't invest in again, and but it's not because they failed; it's because of how they failed. Because I watched them not focus on the right things and make questionable decisions, and that not questionable ethically, but just decisions that weren't good for the for growing the startup. All right, we're coming up on time, but I have two more questions I'd love to cover. Mike Q says that example where you mentioned about a VC, a venture capitalist, blocking a smaller exit of forty million dollars. Can the owner force the issue if at some point there is something a bit larger? Like using that example, what happens at eighty million? It's not black and white. I'm going to be honest. I think it. I think it depends on how long you've been in business. If the venture capitalist, if you're still growing fast, a venture firm is going to want you to keep growing. If you flatlined and you're a zombie in their portfolio and, and you're just flailing at $10 million or $15 million, and it's been years and the fund's getting later and they've already returned most of the fund or whatever, then there's flexibility. There's no one size fits all answer. But in general, if you talk, especially the big venture firms I named earlier, they don't want these eight-figure exits. And in fact, a nine-figure exit, they're raising funds that are literally billions of dollars large, and they want to find an investment that will return the fund, produces that amount, like an Uber or Facebook or a Google. That's the general, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but most firms, that's the goal. That's how they get really big funds versus someone who raises a smaller fund, I think has more flexibility. Last question before we wrap today. These are good questions. Thanks for asking them. Jason says, does age play a part in an angel or a firm's decision in investing in a founder? When you see funds like YC, the popular image seems to be the fresh out of college MIT grad. Yeah, Harvard as well, Yale. I think Y Combinator has specifically targeted, I originally started targeting like grad students because Paul Graham was big in that scene. And they were located in Boston at the time. And I think that's why the traditional one is the 20-somethings. What I'll say that venture capital, I have seen data that suggested that like more funding goes to people in their I think it was thirties and 40s, because of the maturity and perhaps the experience and wins they've had under their belt. But I can't unequivocally quote a source, but I remember seeing that. I will say that in the microconf community, tens of thousands of people strong, we definitely steer more towards that. There, there are a lot of folks in their early twenties, but it's the bulk is in that it's late twenties, thirties, forties, and we tend to be bootstrap mostly bootstrapped and we do it, it does tend to be people who are a little more mature in their career a little deeper into it and have more skill sets built up to be able to grow startups so i have to imagine the question of does age play a part in a firm's decision i have to imagine it does but i will say that certain you'll talk to certain venture capitalists and they say i invest based on the founder i make a bet on the founder and they have something in their mind of what the founders should be. And so I don't know if that venture capitalist thinks age is a part of that equation. At least some may not. I do know that like when people ask me, how do you make decisions at Tiny Seed, It's three Ps, right? It's the people. So it's the founding team. It's whether they have product market fit or how much of that we think they have based on their average revenue per user and churn and all that. And then the pricing, right? Price sensitivity or the pricing power they have. Because if, you, if your average revenue per user is only $10 a month, that's very hard to grow a seven or eight figure business, which is the goal when we invest in a tiny seed company. So it's not, these are not disqualifiers, but they are. it is a question I ask in the interview of, hey, you only have 10 bucks a month coming in per customer. How do you raise that? Or how do you think about still building an amazing business? And with that, we're going to wrap this up. I think that that went pretty well. I am interested in hearing your feedback on this format of episode and take us out from here. I had a good time doing that and great questions. Thanks everybody for participating. If you want to learn more about designing a bootstrapped business, check out the video uh, in the description of this video. So it's called Designing the Ideal Bootstrap Business by Jason Cohen, who was given at MicroConf several years ago. If you're ready to take the leap into building a bootstrap business, uh, check out the playlist building your first bootstrap SaaS, the ultimate crash course. And that's compiled from talks from the MicroConf stage. Thank you so much to Hay and Stripe. They are headline partners. They were last year. They are this year. It's great to have them on board supporting this bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped community. And finally, the big reveal. I hope you stuck around the state of independent saas survey for 2022 for the 2022 report is live. We have not sent out an email, we have not let anyone know, there's no tweets, So you can be the first to hear about it. It's stateofindisass.com to head to that report and that you'll be one of the first to take it this year. And we put this report together to help the bootstrap, mostly bootstrap the independent saas community so we have some and some trends to be able to look at and build our businesses on. And this year we mixed it up. I think we swapped out at least a fifth of 20% of the questions, maybe 25%, with new things about sentiment, about hiring, about how did the last year, how do you feel looking ahead? Like we we swapped it out. So we're going to have some new and interesting things. If you've seen the report before, it's going to be different this year. I'd love for you to participate. It takes about eight to 10 minutes. If you haven't seen the report, you should head over stateofindiesass.com. And we're gonna compile that all anonymously and produce this beautiful report that you'll be able to download for free. And we'll be doing actually a live stream of that in January. So thanks so much for joining me today. Really appreciate it. And I'll see you again, same time, same place in two weeks.